Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we see your power and majesty in Habakkuk 3, we pray that you would truly open our eyes and our hearts to see it and trust in you and and wonder at it, Lord. We pray that it would affect our hearts and that we would be transformed like Habakkuk from trembling and perplexity to quiet joy, Lord. Um, So move in our hearts through this last chapter of Habakkuk. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. I walked up here with my bag. (laughs) Well, we returned to Dubai in December. After a year away, um, Andrew is now in a good church um, in Atlanta. He's doing what he loves, which is rap. He's a rapper. Um, So if you want to listen to his rap, I would love it, and he would love it. And his name is Baby Blue. But Blue is spelled B-L-V-E. It's not Baby Blue. It's Baby Blue, but with a V. And you can find him on all music streaming um, applications. Um, so he's, he's happy there, and he's plugged in with his church. There's a man discipling him there, and, um, and he's, um, he's kind of getting more into the Christian rap scene. The music that he has out right now is not Christian. It's not like the really bad rap stuff, but it's more about the angst that he's gone through. Um, but now he's about to release another couple of songs in conjunction with some other Christian rappers. So he's kind of getting into that scene um, that he wasn't in before because we lived in Dubai. There was no way for him to meet people who were involved in the Christian music scene. So we're really thankful for that. And um, there are gonna be a lot of ups and downs we know, but we were comfortable moving back to Dubai with people here in the States, kind of looking out for him. And after we moved back, last month we celebrated our church's 50th anniversary. So they have been gathering together in Dubai on the Arabian Peninsula for 50 years. And it was really a sweet time of remembering God's faithfulness to his church. Um, John, my husband John, went back and did the research on all of this 50 years of history. He interviewed probably 35 people um, from the original founders of the church, the ones who are still alive, up through um, more recent um, members of the church. And it was just an exciting time of looking at God's faithfulness in the past and looking forward to, to with hope to the future. I mean, we hope the church is there for another 50 years um, or, or more if the Lord tarries. We had pastors speak from our three church plants that we've, we've planted in the, in the country, and we invited 25 former 
pastoral interns. I know you all have a pastoral internship program too, or I'm not sure if you call it residency program too. Those are so good to train these. You know, men don't learn how to pastor in seminary. They can learn a lot in seminary, but through these pastoral residencies and pastoral internships, they learn how to pastor a church. So it was wonderful to have these guys back for some more pastoral training, and they're scattered all over the region in places like Kazakhstan and Nepal and Jordan and Egypt and wider. So as senior pastor of UCCD for the last 17 years, my husband John's ministry has been a simple one of preaching the word, encouraging membership, and training up elders for UCCD and for church plants um, in the surrounding areas. It's been simple but biblical, the way God says to build your church. And as I told you, last year started out in a blur of confusion And all I could do was cry out help to the Lord. But I think the trials over this last year made last month even sweeter to look at what the Lord's done. We remembered what he had done in the 17 years since we've been there. And even how good he's been through our current difficulties. In fact, I think that's what I would overwhelmingly say about the last year, that I have seen God's goodness so vividly. Um, So remembering who God is and that he has remained faithful has caused me to look to the future with hope, and it's caused me to long for heaven. And reading Habakkuk at the same time has given me confidence in this God who comes to rescue his people. Habakkuk begins his short book crying out, right? Help me, Lord. Oh, Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear or cry to you violence and you will not save? That's verse one of the book. But he ends his book in chapter three. Look at chapter three. Though the fig tree should not blossom, this is, chapter, this is verse 17, chapter 3. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit beyond the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation." What a difference a couple chapters make. Habakkuk's circumstances haven't changed. Yet he goes from utter confusion and despair to rejoicing. So what happened here? Let's remember the context. Habakkuk's having a conversation with God. He cries out to him to right the wrongs that are happening in Judah. God answers him that indeed he will right those wrongs by sending a wicked nation to punish his own people, Judah. Habakkuk cries out again, wait a minute, how can you use an evil nation to discipline your own people? God answers this with five woes that we've just considered. He will ultimately punish that nation while the righteous will live by faith. And the knowledge of God's glory will cover the earth 
as the waters cover the sea. Habakkuk is left still watching on the tower, waiting for the Lord. At the end of chapter 2, the whole earth is struck silent before God. But again, Habakkuk is bold enough to pray here. So chapter 3, verses 1 to 2. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet, according to Shigianoth. O Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work. O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. This prayer of Habakkuk was probably a song the people of God would sing. Notice, according to Shigianoth, that it starts out with here. And there are selahs in verses 3 and 9. Those are likely musical terms for corporate worship. And thank God for good, meaty theological songs to sing, like we have been singing here that remind us of the, of the Lord's work. Habakkuk knows what the Lord has done. God has called and saved a people for his treasured possession. He delivered them from slavery in Egypt, gave them the law, and put them in the promised land. This happened well before the prophet was born. But verse 2, it says he's heard the report of the Lord and his work. This prayer is in remembrance of what the Lord has done. Habakkuk asks the Lord to revive it, make it known. But he also asks one more thing. Did you notice it? He asked the Lord to remember mercy in the midst of his wrath. As Habakkuk remembers God's work and his faithfulness, he also remembers the unfaithfulness of God's people. He remembers the people wanting to go back to slavery in Egypt. He remembers the golden calf. He remembers Korah's rebellion. He recognizes that even in his day, the people of Judah are filled with iniquity. But he also remembers God's mercy, even in all their rebellion, sustaining the people through the, their wanderings in the desert, conquering nations before them, his presence going with them every step of the way. What other nation has a God like this? Habakkuk knows that mercy is part of God's very name. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. God is rightly wrathful against guilty people. But oh, how beautiful is his mercy. See here, Habakkuk accepts the justice of God's wrath, but he asks for mercy in it. You know, none of us deserves a smooth and easy life. I was talking with a friend the other day who has struggled with infertility, and now her best friend has stage four cancer. We were thinking about how we as American Christians tend to think that suffering is not normal. 
you know, we get what we earn in this country, right? So if we live good lives, things will be relatively smooth for us. When life goes wrong, we look for something to blame or we look for some way to make it all right. But none of us has earned the right to live a carefree life. We are all sinners and we live in a world that groans under the effects of sin. Jesus even promises his followers trouble in this world. But the Bible calls suffering a gift. And that's because the suffering that God sends into our lives is mixed with mercy. It's actually full of mercy. It's out of his mercy. Out of his great love and mercy, he sends us trials to perfect our faith. Those trials make us rely more on Jesus. They draw us closer to him, and they actually make us look more like him. And that's what this life is all about. If only we could actually grasp that. Oh, that we would learn to kiss the wave that throws us on the rock of ages. Suffering is actually normative to the Christian life. If things are going well for you now, praise God for that. You can rejoice in that. You don't have to go look for suffering. But know that if the Lord tarries, then suffering will come. And out of his great mercy, he sends that suffering into your life for your good. And he'll be with you to the end of that suffering. In Habakkuk, we watch him struggle through suffering and learn to rejoice in the midst of it. He learns to truly rejoice in the Lord, not just in the benefits that he bestows. So what makes all the difference? The bulk of chapter 3 is Habakkuk remembering the Lord rescuing his people He paints a vivid picture of God coming in majesty and power to save. It's so vivid, it's as if it's a vision that he sees. You notice this book is called A Vision. Listen in as I read this and picture the imagery of the next verses. Let God's majesty and power sink in. Okay, let's start in verse 3. God came from Timon, and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covered the heavens, and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light rays flashed from his hand, and there there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence, and plague followed at his heels. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered, and the everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of Kushan in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers, or your indignation against the sea when you rode on your horses? 
on your chariot of salvation? You strip the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging waters swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. The sun and moon stood still in their place at the light of your arrows as they sped, at the flash of your glittering spear. You marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors, who came out like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. This vision makes all the difference for the prophet. We'll see that instead of continuing to wait in turmoil and confusion, Habakkuk waits in quiet, joyful assurance that God will save. This is because he sees God's majesty and power. Let's first consider God's, God's powerful presence with his people in verses 3 to 7. And I'm going to just read this again, verses 3 to 7. God came from Timon and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covered the heavens, and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hand, and there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence, and plague followed at his heels. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of Kushan in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Notice that Habakkuk starts his remembrance at Timon, Mount Paran. This is where the law was given. It's where God made the covenant with Israel. They would be his people and he would be their God. In verses four and five, or three and four, Habakkuk reminds his readers of the power that was displayed on that mountain. Do you remember when Moses was up on the mountain? He went up to receive the law. Deuteronomy 19 tells us there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. And the whole mountain trembled greatly. As the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. At Mount Sinai, God made his glory known in great power as he was giving the law. It was a testimony to who he was and his singular favor for his people who were gathered there. He was a God who could protect and save. He did just that as he delivered the people by pestilence and plague in Egypt and from the armies of Kashan and Midian, 
We see references to these in verses 5 and 7. But notice how Habakkuk expands God's powerful presence beyond Mount Paran. He's coming out from there. Verse 3, his splendor covered the heavens. The earth was full of his praise. And verse 6, the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. Habakkuk is considering God's majesty in all of creation, lasting out into eternity. We see here the everlasting, ever-expanding power that brought his people into the promised land. Habakkuk reminds himself and anyone who will listen what it means to be God's people. He is with his people in power. I want us to learn two things here. One, we need to remember God's majesty and power as we share the gospel and disciple one another in the church. Jesus said to, to Peter, on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. As we go about the work of one another ministry, God's powerful presence is with us. Nothing can thwart him. Don't forget that. Do you feel weak and adequate when you share the gospel with others? Does it seem to fall on deaf ears? Is spiritual growth in you or another person maybe that you're discipling slow? Do your children not seem to be interested in the things of the faith? Take heart. God will call his people to himself. He is graciously with us as we speak the words of scripture to others. He uses weak vessels, and he is the one who causes growth. Be faithful. Hold out the gospel. Get women and children to the scriptures and leave the work to him. I was discipling a few women in our church before we left Dubai, and I just had to drop everything when we abruptly left. When I came back to Dubai in December, I had a conversation with about three different women who I was discipling, and they all told me how much they had grown over the last year, the year that I was gone. <laughs> Two of them are actually discipling several other women themselves now, and the other is pouring into her daughters who are like teenage and adult age. We may plant and water, but God gives the growth. God is on the move. Nothing can stop him. He's coming out from Mount Paran. He is building his church and he's protecting it. Our job is to speak his word, open the scriptures to others, his powerful presence is at work in people's lives. And two, God is present with his people everywhere forever. As you go about your days, God is with you personally. Your life is not fundamentally about your work or your family or your ministry. It's fundamentally about knowing the creator of the universe 
That's why you were created, to enjoy knowing him. There are so many implications of this, and I hope you'll kind of write that down and think about all the implications of you being created to know the God of the universe. But let me just emphasize one. Make sure you're carving out time with him. Your work is important. Your kids are important. Your ministry is important. Surviving day-to-day life is important. But make sure you're mostly about being with your Lord. Don't underestimate the effect of your life in spending daily time with God. Knowing him as he truly is, it is what transforms us from one glory to another. This means opening up your Bible and hearing from him each day. It's such a privilege to do this. Many peoples don't have Bibles. Make this time your priority. Make it the best time of your day. And if you don't delight in reading your Bible, talk to your sisters here or come talk to me. Read my book. That's why I wrote that book. I have been there reading out of duty because I thought this is what a Christian needs to do and not out of delight. And I would bet that all of us here have been there at one time or another, unless you're a very young Christian and you're really excited about it now. We all go through times of that. So let's help each other here this weekend and, to, and talk about these things and help each other delight in the scriptures and have ongoing conversations in your churches, in your church. God is powerfully with his people. Knowing him is what changed Habakkuk from panic to joy. Let's consider next God's powerful salvation of his people. I'm going to read verses 8 to 15. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea when you rode on your horses, on your chariot of salvation? You stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging waters swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. The sun and moon stood still in their place at the light of your arrows as they sped, at the flash of your glittering spear. You marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked laying him bare from thigh to neck. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors, who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. Habakkuk paints a picture of a cosmic warrior trampling over the world. All of nature is affected as the Lord marches through the earth in fury 
and threshes the nation in anger. His wrath rains down on rivers and mountains and seas. It's as if the ocean itself raises its hand in surrender. There are echoes of the exodus and the conquest here, but something greater is also going on. Notice verse 11. The sun and moon stood still in their place at the light of your arrows as they sped, at the flash of your glittering spear. This verse is actually a reference to Joshua 10. Do you remember when Joshua prayed for the Lord to stop the sun and moon until Israel took vengeance on the Amorites? The sun stopped in the midst of heaven and did not hurry to set for about a whole day. And the Lord threw down large stones from heaven on the Amorites, so much so that the hailstones killed more people than the, the armies of Israel. It was a miraculous and great battle. But notice in our verse, the sun doesn't stand still at noon. It stays tucked away. You can actually see this better in the Hebrew than you can in our English translations. But the light of God's arrows and the flash of his spear gives off the only light. The darkness of God's wrath here covers the earth. Why? Why such great fury and wrath? Why does God trample the earth and the sea? Why does he let fly arrows and spears from his chariot? Verses 13 to 14. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors. God is coming in mighty power for the salvation of his people. He is coming to rescue you. But let's pause here for a minute. There is great joy in knowing God's power for his people. But imagine the horror here of God's enemies. Remember even the people of Israel in the giving of the law, how they, the fire and smoke and thunder and lightning that happened, they cowered and trembled. All of the power that we see here in these verses is being poured out in wrath on God's enemies. They can't hide from it. Not under the ancient mountains, not on the deep of the mighty waters, The fury that caused the sun and moon to hide exposes the nations and tramples them underfoot. That's the fury that comes after us in our sin. God created the whole earth to rightly glorify him. And he created us specially in his image so that we would reflect his glory to the world. But instead of living for him, we set ourselves up against him, drawing his wrath toward us. But praise be to God. At the cross, God's wrath and mercy met. 
In mercy toward us, God sent his son to step in the way of the wrath. As the sun and moon hid on that faithful day of the cross and darkness covered the earth, all God's arrows and spears were directed at his son. Jesus is the anointed one who was pierced for the salvation of his people. He is the holy one who came from heaven to save. It didn't look like power. It looked like humility. He humbled himself even to death on a cross. But at the cross, the power of God's mercy satisfied his wrath. God crushed the head of the wicked, the house of the wicked on that day. As Jesus hung bare on the cross, Satan, sin, and death were conquered. They were stripped of their power. And Jesus was raised from the dead, exalted in majesty, never to die again. The ultimate answer to Habakkuk's prayer to God to in his wrath remember mercy, is Jesus. In fact, Jesus is the answer to all of Habakkuk's prayers. While we were his enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. The mercy of Christ has drained the fury that was coming for us and left love. We know the salvation that Habakkuk looked forward to. Christ came out for the salvation of his people. He has crushed the head of the wicked. God has powerfully saved us, and he continues to come out for the salvation of his people. If you are a Christian, your salvation is past, present, and future. You were saved at a point in time, You are being saved, and you will be ultimately saved on the last day. The mountains are scattering, the hills sinking low. The rivers are parting, and the seas are flattened. Every obstacle is being removed, making way for our Lord. Read chapter 3 when you're tired and weary. Read it when you feel like giving up. Remind yourself when you think there's no hope. We can expect this same help of this powerful God that we see here. Majesty and power for us. The power displayed in the vision of Habakkuk is rushing to our aid in every temptation, trial, and tribulation. He is working all of this power for our good. Are you discouraged about your sin? Do you have children who are struggling? Are you questioning whether your day-to-day work makes a difference? Are you just lonely? We need to remember God's work and glimpse a vision of his power and majesty to save. This is what we need during times of difficulty. This is what will sustain us through trials. 
It's what will keep us when we're faced with our own sin. Habakkuk remembers God's powerful presence and his powerful salvation, and everything changes for him. Look at verses 16 to 19. I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no fruit. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. To the choir master with stringed instruments. This passage has been called one of the most powerful statements of faith in all of scripture. And you can see why. It begins with repentance. Verse 16, I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. And then trust. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Habakkuk has a personal reaction of fear and awe at the power of the warrior God coming. And then there's no more questioning. Habakkuk accepts what God will do in faith. He's not pushing back on the invasion anymore. He's waiting for God to do what he will do. And God did do it. Babylon took Judah into captivity. But then in 539 BC, Babylon fell to the Medes and the Persians. Habakkuk's trembling, quiet trust turns to joy. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. This joy is not dependent on the crops succeeding and the cattle multiplying, but it's dependent on the source of all of these things. Habakkuk rejoices in Yahweh, the personal God of his people. He calls him the God of my salvation, his strength. He realizes that although he's stripped of everything else, he can never be deprived of his covenant God. Habakkuk's faith isn't dependent on circumstances. It's dependent on his God who is coming to save. Do you see why Habakkuk's cry of help at the beginning of this book changed to rejoicing in the end? None of his circumstances changed. He was still up on that tower waiting, trembling for what would come. But he processed his thoughts and prayed through a biblical grid. 
Habakkuk knew the scriptures so well that they were like an epic motion picture in his mind. God coming to rescue his people. Overwhelming victory. He remembered God was powerfully present with his people and he was powerful to save. We must do the same. God will ultimately destroy all evil. And that actually includes our sin. It's not comfortable, and we can't do it our way. God uses various means to accomplish his purposes in and through us. And his means might not look good on the surface, but they are always the best means to accomplish the greatest good in our lives. We, like Habakkuk, need to repent and trust this powerful God to do what is best. He is merciful, and he's a good God who has forgiven all of our sins in Christ Jesus. Calvin wrote, Estimate not his love by external things, but strengthen yourself by embracing the promise of his mercy. For it is impossible that he will forget mercy even while he's angry. Ladies, Jesus proved that definitively on the cross. Habakkuk was looking forward to him. We look back to the cross and see that he has come to save. Well, we should conclude. John and I had great joy considering what the Lord has done in our church over the last 50 years. He has been so faithful. And that's just one little example in two little lives. He has always been faithful, going out for the salvation of his people. And he will remain faithful to the end. For that, we can quietly and joyfully wait. Let me finish by reading to you what the end will look like. Here's what it's all about. God is threshing the nations, and he's gathering those who are his to join him in the heavenly city. Turn to Revelation 21, verse 22. Last book of the Bible. The culmination And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. This is the ultimate day that Habakkuk waited for, a never-ending day, 
And that's what we're waiting for. So don't lose heart in times of suffering. We have an even greater view than Habakkuk up on that tower. We know the end of the story, or should I say the beginning of the never-ending story. We will spend eternity with God face to face. Come, Lord Jesus. Come out for the salvation of your people. Let's pray. We do pray that, come Lord Jesus, come for the salvation of your people. We long to see you face to face and be gathered together in that celestial city on that day. Heavenly Father, we pray that this truth about your power to save your people and your powerful presence with us would be true in our lives, that we would know it deep down in our hearts. And that because we know you personally, we would go through suffering in quiet, joyful trust of you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.